You know, one of my favorite things about summer is a campfire. How many of you have gotten to have a campfire at least once this summer? That's it? Some of y'all need to fix that. You need, we, need to, we need to have a campfire here. We need to find a way for you to get to a campfire. And there is something special about a campfire. And uh, we've gotten to have several this, this year. And hopefully there will be several more uh, in our near future. But my favorite campfires so far this year were at kids camp. Uh, our congregation really opened up their hearts and opened up their wallets and gave significant funds in order to make sure that every elementary, middle school, and high school student that wanted to go to camp could go to camp and wouldn't have to pay extra for transportation and some things like that. So consequently, we sent more people to camp than Linwood has ever sent before. And there was a spiritual harvest at each of these camps. And one of the highlights for me is at kids' camp, we get to do campfires with the kids. After worship and after they jump and sing and dance and do all that, and then they, they hear from the message, which, by the way, 39 kids accepted Christ for the first time at summer camp this year. You had a part in that. Several were from our congregation. But after those, those big events where there's lots of worship and there's excitement and there's the message being shared, we go to a campfire. And I was glad that I got to start the campfire because I like to do that. And then our children's pastor or another children's pastor from, that's represented in that group gets to share with the kids and gets to ask them questions. And, and there's something cool about a campfire. There's no outsiders at a campfire. They're all sitting in a circle. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a community. It's a fellowship. And you can't hardly take your eyes off of a campfire because it's always changing. And whether it's big or whether it's dying down to the embers, there's something special. And so it's like the focus is on the fire. And the kids will share things among their peers that they might not share in a room with the lights on. You know, that, that, that there's an openness. There's a, a peace that comes. And they share and then they worship together and we just sing a cappella or sing along with a song. And it's a beautiful, beautiful way to end the day. And so I want you to think about that and we'll kind of revisit this a little bit later on. But we're starting a series and it's titled Holy Fire. And I've always been fascinated by the concept of holy fire. I've admitted before that I was a little bit of a pyromaniac when I was a child. And so I don't know if that's a part of this, but I loved building fires. I loved adding wood to fires. You had to keep an eye on Mark when he was about Carson's age because the fire could get real big real fast, right? But I've always been fascinated by fire. And I've always been fascinated in Scripture by the concept of holy fire, fire from heaven, fire that comes down in a spectacular way that is unmistakably God's activity in the world, heaven breaking through in a powerful way. And so if you were here this summer when Pastor Jake from Resilient Church shared, he shared about Elijah on Mount Carmel, which is one of my favorite stories of holy fire, when he takes on the hundreds of prophets of Baal and puts a beat down on them with the holy fire that comes and consumes not only the sacrifice, but the altar and the water all around it. It's just a powerful story, but it's just one of many stories where holy fire comes down from heaven. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are many instances of this. 
You got Moses at the burning bush. You have the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that led the Israelites through the wilderness, a constant example of God's presence with them. We're told in Scripture that our God is a consuming fire. The New Testament quotes the Old Testament stating that. David has a similar example where he is repenting of God in 1 Chronicles 21 for for going beyond what God's instructions to him were, and, and he builds an altar, and God blesses the altar and accepts the sacrifice on the altar by sending fire from heaven. There's another example of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1 where fire comes from heaven. Jeremiah spoke about the fire in his bones and even if he tried to stop speaking the words that God was giving him, he would not be able to because he could not quench the fire in his bones. Peter spoke about fiery ordeals that come upon us and our mind goes to things like Daniel and and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the fiery furnace. And so there are examples of God's presence within fire, of God sending fire. There are all kinds of, of rich illustrations and object lessons and stories from Scripture. And so we're going to look at some of those over the next few weeks. And we're going to ask, what can we learn from this? And more importantly, how can we apply it to our lives today? To bring God's holy fire into this world through our surrendered hearts, through our lives, living as followers of Christ. And so we're going to start today with one of my favorite instances of holy fire. And I wrestled with this because initially I thought, well, maybe I should start chronologically and I should move through these stories chronologically. And I just, it wasn't coming together. And I thought, man, I haven't prepared a sermon in nine weeks. Is this, you know penance for that or or what I mean I was preaching on my walks I would find myself slipping out of prayer and into preaching and I'm preaching to the birds and I'm preaching to to the neighborhood basically under my breath and I was just like ready to go but it wasn't coming and I said okay I got up and I took a little walk and said God what do you want me to say this Sunday and I felt like he said you've got to start with Pentecost You've got to start with the holy fire that came in Acts chapter 2. Because it is perhaps the most profound and important of all the stories for us today as New Testament believers, as New Covenant people. Pentecost is a big deal. It's hard to imagine a bigger deal or a bigger example of holy fire. It's so foundational to the Christian church and to the Christian faith. And it comes just days after Jesus ascended into heaven. The fire came. The Holy Spirit came. And so today I've titled this message, What Language Do You Speak? You might be thinking, what? I wonder why he said that. We'll get back to it, don't worry. More on that later. For now, we're going to read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And so if you have a Bible with you, open it up. If you need a Bible, there are some here in the sanctuary, uh, in the seats in front of you. You can turn to page 1692. If you're joining online, grab a Bible, or it's going to be on the screen as well if you just want to look up um, and and not open up a phone or something because that might bring a distraction. Just uh, follow along with us. I'm going to break this down into chunks so that we can move through it because this is a powerful story, and it's almost hard to believe if you really try to imagine what this would have been like. So in Acts chapter 2, uh, Luke is writing the book of Acts. A lot of people, 
I didn't know that for a long time because they're not next to each other. For whatever reason, they shoved John in between Luke and Acts. But this was originally basically two volumes of one manuscript, a commissioned manuscript that Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, writes also the Acts of the Apostles. And so after the narrative of Luke ends in the death and the resurrection, then he begins Acts right on the heels of that. And Jesus has just appeared to the disciples in Acts chapter 1 and ascended into heaven. And just before he did that, he told them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the utter ends of the earth. And then he goes up to heaven and they're all gazing at the clouds and a couple of angels come and say, hey... Get going. You're not here. You haven't been called to stare at the sky. You've been called to go and wait for the power that is coming so that you can be his witnesses. That's where we pick up the story. About 10 days later, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit enabled them. Now, have you heard this one before? Have you heard this story before? Is this familiar to you? Many of you, it probably is. If you're doing our E100 reading plan and you started when I started back in May 15th, you just read Acts. Like in the last couple of days, we started into Acts and we've been reading Acts. And so this is... This is maybe a familiar story, or maybe you've just been hanging around the church for so long that that you've heard this one before. And if that's you, I would invite you to try real hard to imagine you've never heard this before. And to try to place yourself in that upper room, in that house, wherever they were meeting. And to imagine that this was happening to you. And if you're brand new, then you've got you've to leg up on all the rest of us because this is new and this is fairly sensational and you're hearing something like this for the first time and that's a powerful experience. Because the day of Pentecost comes 50 days after the Passover and it was a scheduled festival in the Old Testament. They used to call it the Festival of Weeks because it came seven weeks after Passover. So 50 days after Passover, that's where the Pentecost comes from, the Greek word for 50 it includes that root penta, like pentagon. So this is all kind of coming together. And it was a big annual event, and people came from all over the place. And so in my mind, I liken it to like a Christmas experience or an Easter experience or maybe Mother's Day. Those are the three biggest weekends in the church today when the most people are here. And so Jerusalem is, had this influx of people, and there's people everywhere, and they're celebrating the Festival of Weeks, much like we would on a Christmas Eve or an Easter Sunday, or a Mother's Day morning. And then this happens. And think about what is said here, that there were a sound like a violent wind came in. My mind goes to back in 2019 when the tornadoes came to Sioux Falls. They touched down about a mile from our house. And I remember waking up to this sound like nothing I had ever heard before. It had a power and a depth to it as that tornado went over our house and then touched down nearby that's the sound that I imagine it's unmistakable it's not like you could just say oh that's interesting I wonder what that's all about and then beyond the sound tongues of fire come down they separate 
and rest on every single person's head. Now, if that happened on the Christmas Eve service, you'd be concerned that somebody had gotten their candle a little close to somebody's hair and there was a little too much hairspray involved, right? But, but there's no hairspray in first century Jerusalem, so you don't have to worry about that. And there's no evidence that there was any kind of fire. This was purely a divine event. And then, as if that wasn't spectacular enough, Something comes from within each person, and they begin speaking in languages that they have never spoken before. They begin speaking in every language, and they just start prophesying, speaking the words of God. Try to imagine that for a moment. What would you be thinking? What would you do? Would you be on your way out, <laughs> headed for the door? Would you lean in? Well, let's, let's see what happened. Next. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, which I mentioned earlier. This is a big festival. There's a lot of people there. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Now, like you can imagine, that definitely drew a crowd. But keep in mind, even if that happened here, the nearest buildings to this church are... 20, 30, 40 feet away. That's not the case in first century Jerusalem. Everything was really close and compact together. The streets were narrow. When you hear a sound like that, it drew a crowd. Everybody from anywhere nearby wanted to know what was going on. They came to look. They were looking inside to see what was happening. And there were many travelers from all over the world who had come. You see, the Jews had been exiled hundreds of years earlier. They had been sent all over the known world. And then Rome started building roads, and Alexander the Great started building roads, and, and there was easier to get around. So there were more and more people coming to Jerusalem for these festivals from all over the world, speaking different languages. And they would experience what they experienced in this event, and then they would go home. And they would tell people what they had seen and heard. And so you see an early fulfillment of the Acts 1-8 promise. And as they hear this sound, they hear their language being spoken. Their foreign language being spoken. And this right here, we've got to pause on this for just a moment because this is a deeply significant event in the biblical narrative, in biblical history. You've got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 11 to understand the full scope of what is happening here. If you're familiar with your Old Testament history, in Genesis chapter 11, the people decide they want to build a tower. They call it the Tower of Babel. And the reason that they wanted to build this tower, even though God had sold, told them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, that was one of the first commands in all of Scripture, they did not disperse. They stayed close together. And they said, you know what we ought to do? We ought to build a tower that goes all the way up to the heavens so that we will make a name for ourselves. This was sin. And God said, you were supposed to go. Not you were supposed to make a name for yourself. You're supposed to worship me. You're supposed to make a name for me. And so he confuses their languages and he scatters the people. And here we have a reversal of Babel. At the beginning of the New Testament, in the New Testament era, in the New Covenant, at the beginning of the New Testament church, there's a reversal of Babel. Not now the languages being scattered and the people being dispersed. Instead, they're coming together. The languages are being sort of unscrambled. The people are being drawn together. And there is spirit-empowered uniting 
of the languages. Language is no longer a barrier for the gospel to go forward. Now these people have heard and they can go back to where they came from because they've heard what is happening in their own language. And the next few verses give us the real heart of the story as we read verses 7 through 12. So, so we're continuing on here. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? And then they listed a bunch of countries, which I could probably pronounce, but they already told us every nation under earth, on the earth had, had a representative there in verse 5. So let's just skip down to the bottom half of verse 11. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? And this is the real heart of the story for us, I believe, today. What were they saying when they were speaking the words in these different languages, languages that they had never spoken before? What were they saying? It's in the second half of verse 11. It says they were declaring the wonders of God. What were the wonders of God? What was the most recent example of the wonders of God? It was Jesus Christ. It was the life of Christ. It was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was the ascension of Jesus Christ back into heaven. And it causes the people to lean in. They want to know more. They were amazed and perplexed, bewildered, we're told. Wouldn't you be? Wouldn't you be if you're walking through town in a strange city and you hear a sound like a mighty rushing wind and you look in the window and there's tongues of fire on somebody's head and, and they're speaking your language? You would be amazed and bewildered. And they ask, what could this mean? Well, Peter gets up and tells them what it means. And the rest of Acts chapter 2 is this powerful, powerful sermon. And it basically goes something like this. Here's the Cliff's Notes version. You should read the rest of Acts chapter 2. But the Cliff's Notes version is Peter gets up and says, here's what it means. Jesus was a man sent by God. He was God's own son. He was perfect in every way. You killed him. God raised him. Say you're sorry. That's the sermon. You killed him. God raised him. Say you're sorry. And they did. And we're told that 3,000 believed just that day. And the church was born. And we're here 2,000 years later sitting in a building like this in Sioux Falls, South Dakota because the church was born. The called out assembly began right here on the day of Pentecost. And the world has never been the same. And something like two and a half billion people know who Jesus is and are following him. And so our bottom line today is that God gives his power for his purposes. God gives his power for his purposes. What was his purpose here? That people would hear the wonders of God in their own language so that they could take that back to where they had come from. That this happened specifically on Pentecost for a purpose because people from every nation were there. And he empowered the people to speak in all these other languages so that everyone who was there could hear the wonders of God in their own language. 
And some commentaries speculate that as Peter preaches, most likely in Aramaic, that everybody could hear in their own language, that there was spirit-empowered hearing, not just spirit-empowered speaking. And so as they return, they know what happened in Jerusalem. They know about Jesus. They know about the death and resurrection. They know about the Spirit's power coming to the people. And that line, God gives his power for his purposes, is the first part of a quote that was shared at our district conference by our general director of the Wesleyan Church. He came and visited the Northwest District District Conference in Rapid City at the end of June. And that quote is, is actually from Kevin Myers, who pastors a large Wesleyan church in, in Atlanta, Georgia. And it continues. It says, God gives his power for his purposes. He doesn't give his power for our purposes. And he doesn't expect us to fulfill his purposes in our own power. Isn't that good news? Instead, he invites us and welcomes us to seek his power and his purposes in prayer. Do you see the relationship between God's power and God's purposes and where we fit into the equation? We are to seek God's power for God's purposes through prayer because God gives his power for his purposes. He's not just showing off here. And he's not just giving them power so that they will be able to sell their goods in these foreign languages or something like that or for their own benefit. He gives their power for their purposes. And Jesus had a purpose back in Acts 1.8. I will give you power and you will be my witnesses. That's the purpose. And God wants to give us power to accomplish his purposes. You see, Jesus commissioned them, and he empowered them. He didn't commission them and leave them without power to do what he had asked them to do. He commissioned them, and then he empowered them. And he commissions us, and he empowers us. And he has commissioned you, and he will empower you as you get busy doing the work that he's called you to do. So... To revisit our sermon title for today. Is it starting to make sense? What language do you speak? What language do you speak? And I'll give you a little hint. I'm not talking about English. Maybe you speak another language too. God bless you if you do. I have a piece of paper that says I have an associate's degree in Spanish, but I am not conversational in Spanish anymore. There was a time, yes. And after about a week in a Spanish-speaking country, more and more of it comes back. It's kind of weird how that happens. But I'm not talking about English, and I'm not talking about another spoken language necessarily. I'm talking about cultural languages. I want you to broaden your horizon. I don't want you to say, oh, well, Pastor Mark, I only speak English. It's not for me. No, you speak a cultural language. Maybe you speak a vocational language. Maybe you speak a recreational language or a generational language. Language. I want you to ask God, what language do I speak? If you're thinking about vocational languages, maybe, you know, there's a farmer, there's a teacher, there's a business owner, there's a salesman, there's an engineer, there's a nurse, there's a doctor, there's an auto mechanic. All of these vocations have a specific vocabulary to them, don't they? There's things that if you work in that field, you know things, you understand how things work, you understand the vocabulary, you understand the importance of that. 
You understand the values that people have. Recreationally, recreation's a big deal, right? Runners have a certain language. Golfers have a certain language. Cyclists, fishermen, hunters, crafters. You have a language. You understand things. You understand things that maybe people that don't share that recreational passion don't understand. Generationally. There are languages that are spoken generationally. If you're from the greatest generation, there is a certain vocabulary you have that doesn't necessarily translate to Gen Z. There are words that you use, phrases that you use that have meaning to you that don't necessarily translate in other generations. If you're, if you're an empty nester, if you're a young parent, if you're a young adult, you have a cultural language within that. And so do the people that share that language. And you can speak to them. You can reach them in a powerful way because you speak the same language. So whether it's vocational or recreational or generational, or think about students in our high schools, in our middle schools, in our colleges, within your major, within your area of focus, within sports or band or drama or other areas, you speak a language and there are people that you speak a common language with that you can speak the words of God to. You can declare the wonders of God to because they will understand what you're saying because you have credibility because of the language that you speak. And when you share God's wonders, they're going to say, wow, this person's speaking my language. This person understands me. This person understands and shares the values that I have. And going beyond vocational and recreational and generational, think about stages of life. Think about those who are grieving. There's a language And that's why we have grief share. And there are people who have come into our church through grief share because somebody spoke their language and understood what they were going through and loved them and accepted them and brought them into the fellowship. Cancer survivors, I see this. There's a fellowship, there's a community, there's a common language. There's something that you know and understand as a cancer survivor that other people don't. And it gives you an opportunity to speak that language. And I couldn't help but think of the literal language of our African Wesleyan church. They speak the Kinyarwandan language, but they also speak the language of being a refugee or being a foreigner or being a first-generation immigrant. And so they have powerful outreach as they speak that language and they identify with people who share that experience. What language do you speak? And are you willing to leverage your influence to reach people far from God? who speak the same language as you? Are you willing to seek in prayer God's power for the purpose of declaring his goodness to the world in order to reach people? Are you willing to pray for God to fill you with his power and guide you in his purpose? As the worship team comes up, I want to create a little bit of space for you to consider this. And I want to give you an opportunity to put on your calendar right now to save the date for August 26th and 27th. It's our next 24 hours of prayer. We've done several of these in the last year. We're going to be doing these at least quarterly going forward. And I would love for every single person that calls Linwood Church their church home to block out an hour. Yes, a whole hour for prayer. We're going to give you a guide that's going to take you through the whole building so that as we prepare for our fall ministry season, this church is saturated in prayer. 
And so every place that we do ministry in this building, there's going to be opportunities to pray and pray specifically for the ministry that will take place in the fellowship hall and in the gym and in the youth and in the children's wing and in the foyer as people come in and in this sanctuary. And we're going to bake prayer into this church so when people come in, they're stepping onto holy ground, a place where people have prayed for them to hear the words of God in their language and to experience his goodness and his grace. As we prepare to go, I want to circle back to the campfire. Who can you build a campfire with? Who can you build a campfire for in the weeks ahead? How can you create an environment where somebody who's far from God realizes they're not an outsider because you speak the same language? because you understand their story a little bit? And how can you create an environment where there is an openness and a freedom to share where they will lean in and want to know more and you have an opportunity to not only hear their story, but to share your story, to share the story of God's love in your life, to share the gospel, to begin making a disciple. That's our call. That's God's vision for our lives is that we would be speaking and declaring the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his glorious grace. And that we would be finding those to whom we have a unique connection where we speak the same language and that we would share what God has done in our lives. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word and we are so thankful that you give us your power for your purposes. God, help us empower us, guide us, direct us, show us where you want us to go. Show us who we speak a common language with and give us the courage and the boldness to begin speaking, to begin declaring your wonders in our own lives and in this grand redemptive story this whole world that you've invited us to be a part of, that you've invited us to be ministers of reconciliation. Pour out your spirit on us, God. Help us to respond in faith to the word we have heard today. In Jesus' name we pray.